0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name's Piers Kelly, and today I'm talking to Dr. Maya Ponsonnet, a linguist at the University of Western Australia, who will soon be taking up a CNRS position at the Laboratoire Dynamique du Langage in Lyon. Full disclosure, Maya is a longtime colleague and friend. Maya, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, thank you very much for the invitation, and it's uh, lovely to be here uh, having a chat with you this morning.
2: You're the author of many papers on language and two books. The first, published in 2014, is titled The Language of Emotions, the Case of Dalabon, Australia. And more recently, you've written Difference and Repetition in Language Shift to a Creole, The Expression of Emotions, and that's published by Routledge. This recent book centres on the question of what really happens when a group of people who have spoken their heritage language since time immemorial shift to speaking a completely different language. One popular assumption is that once you stop using your traditional language, you also lose all the cultural perspectives and language-specific meanings that are embedded in it. This view tends to be premised on the related idea that linguistic structures have the effect of constraining or at least organising our experience of the world in irreducible ways. These are just two of the truisms that you challenge in Difference and Repetition. But before we talk about this book and all of its important ideas, I want to start by asking about you. What first brought you to linguistics? And as a linguist or anthropological linguist, What are some of the burning questions that underlie your
1: research wow that's a big question Uh, so uh well first perhaps i would like to say that yes uh, i have one part of my work that uh dealt specifically with you know uh, language shift and what happens when people change language and this linked this link between language and culture um Perhaps I also work uh, specifically on expressivity and emotions in language. So my work on language shift is is a part of that, um, and that interest in expressivity and emotions is anchored in an initial interest that I have had, which was not in linguistics but in in the mind, in uh, philosophy of mind, internal states, you know, internal processes such as pain and including uh, emotions and. What really fascinates me with, with these these um, internal states uh, is that they are internal. They happen in our mind. They happen in a sense, you know, to tell it to say it in a in a non-theoretical way. They happen inside us. Nevertheless, humans communicate about them. We seem to you know have be able to project uh, what happens to others regarding these internal states. And um, this, this ability challenges the other uh, side of the equation, which is this idea of the opacity of other minds, right? So, of course, I, I cannot open your head and see what's inside you, but we have all these communication means, including language, that allow us to project enough of these internal states from other people to function uh, as a society and to also develop empathy for others, etc. So that's, uh, in this way, I think language is is a very important tool and I'm fascinated by this process of unpacking the invisible. So that's what this is, this role of language that uh, drew me to the study of language and to the study in particular of how people talk about internal states, including uh, emotions. And, yeah, so...
2: Okay, yeah, I think... um... When you talk about internal states and and the invisible, I'm thinking kind of almost tangentially to that. I I've always enjoyed in your work the way that you take not just you're not just talking about internal states, you're talking about the tacit assumptions also that people carry about language, and you have a way of bringing them into light. Um, for example, you often challenge readers not to exoticize minority languages, and you do this by using cross-linguistic comparative examples to illustrate all the range of similarities as well as differences in the modes of expression across the world. And another thing I enjoy um, about your work is that, in aggregate, it sort of undermines this centuries-old prejudice that Indigenous languages or languages spoken within small-scale traditional societies are somehow in deficit when it comes to representing abstractions. Uh, And by contrast, it's the the big global languages that are seen to be ideally suited to you know science reason thought and, uh, and other um, abstract ideas and indigenous languages meanwhile are said to be designed for the concrete and the practical
1: yes and and, this, yeah, and indeed no. I, I found something completely different in my yeah. in my work I mean I Absolutely. found that obviously there are many words and ways that uh, everybody in the world I suppose and in particular the Taliban speakers I was working with uh, of course they also talk about internal states.
2: Yeah. Um so let's talk about your book difference and repetition in language shift to a creole. Tell me what it was that you were seeking to understand and and what was the data that you drew on for it.
1: Yeah. So uh so the so here I am now you can picture me as uh you know someone with an interest in in language and internal state knowledge emotions uh and having also passed off uh, an acquaintance with the community that dated back to my work as a linguist. So I, I approached, I was, you know, interacting and working with Taliban speakers to document uh, the, the way they speak about emotions in their work. So I spent many years uh, doing this and studying, therefore studying Taliban, which is an endangered language. And that resulted in my first book, which, uh, you know, for which I worked with speakers such as Maggie Tukumba, Winnie Brennan, Lily Bennett, who were master speakers of Taliban. Meanwhile I also these were elders and in fact uh, Maggie and Lily have already passed away and meanwhile I was also obviously interacting with the rest of the community and with them using another language which is not Durban which is creole so creole is uh, is spelled K R I O L and it's a new language a, a language that is called a type of language that is called a creole which is a sort of like a, a contact language that has features of English along with features of uh, the local Australian languages. And that was the language I was interacting, um, I was using to, we were using to interact on a day-to-day basis while I was documenting Taliban. And that sort of triggered my my curiosity of, you know, asking myself, well, what what happened in this transfer? You have some people in this community who speak Taliban and then a majority of people who speak Creole. What's what happens to the expression and description of internal state in this change? So I decided to. So I had done a lot of documentation work, recording people speaking, you know, narrating emotional stories in Taliban, etc. And I decided to do the same work in Creole. So I ended up with two corpora recording with with speakers. So speakers of Creole who contributed to the the corpus in this language are. People like Ingrid Ashley, Angela Ashley, Maggie Jensen, Bonita Bennett, Tarana Manita, and many more. So I had these two corpora, and I compared uh, I compared the features that I found uh, in each.
2: Yeah, that's that's really amazing to have that those um, rich parallel corpora, basically. Um, at the, just going to step back a bit. At the, at the very beginning of the book, you give a really nice overview of, um, of Warfian inquiries into language. In other words, you consider the, the current state of research into the purported effects of particular language forms on um, speakers and perceptions um, and behaviours. This is the, the linguistic relativity hypothesis. And you conclude this section by saying that even with all these new and wonderful empirical studies and methods, there is currently little scientific consensus about the correlations between language, culture, and thought, let alone any causal directionality. How do you see intellectual progress in this area of linguistics, and what's the way forward in your view?
1: Yes, so I think uh, well, perhaps uh, one thing to say now is that, of course, as if, as one finds out quickly if they read my book. What I find, what I found when I compared Creole and Talbon in this way, is that there may be some differences between the languages, but essentially language adapts. So mm. language is driven by, by by culture, at least in the mm. case of the expression of emotions, rather than the opposite. Language is plastic. So yep. what this, so in terms, so this is in a sense a counterexample to linguistic relativity because linguistic okay. relativity tells you that language could impose certain things to the way people think. And I think there's a lot of counterexamples. So the field of uh, studies on linguistic relativity is interesting because you there's lots of case studies, lots of researchers, colleagues have looked into specific cases And there's a lot of contradictory evidence, in a sense. So, well, it's not contradictory, but we have some cases where linguistic relativity does seem to, you know, there's something to it. So the language of space, for instance, is is an area, the way people describe space, it's an area where there seems to be some evidence that there is a correlation between language and cognition and behavior. But then you have lots of uh, counterexamples with studies of uh, either a space in language shift context or uh, studies on something else. And I think what's probably perhaps at the moment, there's a need for some kind of synthesis. So Mm. uh, if I had the time of, if if someone else has the time, I think it would be fantastic to do a sort of meta analysis of these, of all the the research that is currently available on linguistic relativity and related topics. And try to generalize. So, and it wouldn't be to to try and find like you know the answer like Mm -hmm. yes or no, but simply to say okay, in context X, maybe that's the sort of context where you could you could expect some influence of language. In context Y, on the other hand, or in Y or Z semantic domain, don't expect it because we see that this is not where it tends to happen. So something of a a step towards generalization of the results of the diversity of results that we currently have on linguistic relativity.
2: Yeah, that that's great. And I realized when I asked you that that I, I'd skipped ahead a question by mistake. <laughs> but um we can go back because this is good, in fact, that speaking of generalizations, you 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 developed, I wanted to ask you after you developed this this data set and you've been working with these people and um you obviously you don't develop a data set without a question in mind so what was it that you were um, what was it that you found out when you when you looked ke- more carefully at this this creole um, language material and and, and dalapon
1: yeah uh, so yes it's interesting like yeah i agree you don't you don't develop a corpus without a question in mind but the question can be more or less uh, specific or can be sort of general. So my the the, the underlying motive for developing my corpus was, I want to be able, able to compare the way people talk about emotions in these two languages or express emotions in these two languages, and I didn't I really didn't have a preconceived uh, idea of what I would found, find find, mm-hmm. uh, and I, in fact I was quite surprised initially when I when I saw things unfold. Literally before my eyes, as I was recording, you know, things in Creole, and I already had the, you know, the knowledge of Taliban. So um, what I found is that a lot of the, a lot of the, the Creole language, the, the fabric, its fabric, is very different from Taliban in terms of its morphology, etc. So in a sense, if you like, its sort of basic grammatical profile is very different. But there's so the languages are far apart in their makeup. But you do find that uh, Creole has included a lot of features that allow its speakers to say things and package linguistic messages in the same way as Taliban speakers would package them. So that comes with words, for instance, that may sound English because that's what Creoles do. They borrow language, they borrow words, forms, from the the dominant language. So in Creole, words, words come from English but their meanings tend to be often close to the meaning of words you find in Taliban. We can give examples of that. And it's the same with construction. So I found that sometimes Creole doesn't have a certain type of construction, grammatical construction, because, because of the the grammatical makeup of it. And while Taliban has this construction, but speakers take something else to express the same meaning. So that's what I was saying earlier when I said language is plastic, you know, Mm. Take a group of people, give them a number of, you know, a sort of a base, a basic lexical grammatical tool. They're going to, you know, manage with it to say whatever they need to say, and they will tweak it, they will modulate it in a way that allows them to express what they want. So that's basically what I found, and I think we often forget. Um, this is something I notice also when I when I explain these things to students. For instance, we think of language shift as translation. So we mm. think that, uh, you know, I, I speak English and I also speak French. So of course I operate with in English within an English speaking community and in French within a French speaking community. So if I try to translate the two languages, I'm constrained by the norms imposed by these two communities. But if I, if I was to, you know, speak English for several years with a bunch of people who uh, don't speak French and we have to communicate in English, but everybody has a different linguistic background, Within a very short time, this English that we would be using would not look like English at all. It would just drift away. And this is just a natural fact. So language shift is not translation. People who have shifted from, say, not even Creole, but, say, you know, any Australian language to, say, Aboriginal English or any variety of English in the world, they don't translate things from their older language to their newer language. They just use this new grammatical tool, to express whatever they want and then modify the lexical grammatical code as they wish because they're not, not constrained by any norm.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean that's that's really interesting. And I just um um bev- before we go into some of the great examples in your book and, and and talk about the 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 text of your book, um I wanna briefly go back to to motivations or research mo- motivations because I enjoy the the dilemma that you brought up at the beginning, namely that focus folk assumptions that language embodies culture, or who knows, language that, that shift equals translation or whatever, these folk assumptions can in fact be politically effective when it comes to seeking support for endangered languages, even though this equation is by no means straightforward. And this is not just a folk assumption perpetuated by the mainstream, it's one that's often embraced by speakers of traditional languages. You point out that one of the problems with this formulation, that language somehow embodies and and holds culture, is that it stigmatizes those who have had their language taken away from them, and it inadvertently casts them as culturally inauthentic, in inverted commas. Can you perhaps talk about cases of this that you've personally encountered where someone has taken on this assumption and followed it through towards this unfortunate implication?
1: Yes, sure. So for first I would like to say perhaps here that I, I do not mean to deny anybody's right to feel attached to their language and to feel that mm. language is, in fact, language is a cultural asset. So, right. you know, the, certainly language is just like art or music or poetry. Or So certainly I don't want to deny if someone feels that mm. their language is important to them because it brings them closer to something that they feel is part of their identity, I'm certainly not denying this in fact it should be embraced and supported where needed but mm-hmm. it's more like the the sort of like the perhaps the over overly emphasizing this can be dangerous in right. terms of one practical case where people are you know being asked to be authentic and language is actually instrumentalized as a means to measure authenticity Is native title so the native yeah. title law in australia is a is a is a legal framework that allows uh, for uh, people who are, uh, you know, traditional owners and custodians of the uh, of the, the continent to claim legal ownership on their land, which, which is ironic because you know they've always they've they, they are the owner of this land, but if they want a legal title to it, they need to make a claim and go through often very long uh, legal cases, and language is. Can be used is often used in these cases to to demonstrate uh, ties to the land, but also the other way around. So then, if you have if you don't speak the, the, this traditional language, it's a harder case to make that maybe you know the way you speak English still retains traces of the of the like I said before of the of your older language. So this is very very tricky because it's a very very uh, sharp double edged sword that you know. Language often plays against people in this context. And also it's been well documented by colleagues such as, uh, Michael Walsh, for instance, who, who has, uh, observed that in the legal system in court cases, language is, is really used in this way, you know, to discard people, to dismiss people's claims because they're, if they speak English, they're, uh, inauthentic, for instance. Mm. So uh, this is some, this is an area where it's operationalized. But going back to the question of, internalization uh, of course you know there's like I said before there's nothing wrong with with feeling attached to you know your your uh, linguistic identity for instance if you are uh, Greek and you know you you live in Australia you're Australian you're Australian but you also have your parents are Greek but you you don't speak Greek and you feel that you have this anchoring to uh, go back to Greece and learn the language I mean there's nothing wrong with that. Perhaps it's even a nice thing because it's a, it's a drive in life and it's it's achievable, yeah. right? So, but I've seen cases where, for instance, I remember this young man. Uh, that was a long time ago in Arnhem Land where I work. Um, this young man who we had, I had a conversation with him and a brief conversation with him, where he explained to me that he felt that Creole was brainwashed from English so Creole was yeah. his language you know and he described it as brainwashed from English which yeah um is, is sad and I he also stated that you know for him he felt that the traditional languages were too hard to learn and so on and so forth and as it happened this person committed suicide shortly oh. after this conversation which I mean I don't want to draw you know I don't want to say that it is his linguistic uh his sense of his linguistic um lack of belonging that Mm. drew him to this sad end, tragic end. But certainly it probably didn't help and it was part of a general um, uh, I guess uh, difficulty with his identity.
2: Yeah, yeah. All right. well let's talk about emotions you you focus on ways of expressing emotions in dalabon and you compare these to counterpart forms in creole or the variety of creole as it's spoken by dalabon people today why did you choose to investigate the domain of emotions in particular
1: that's uh, thank you for asking the question because i answered to i answered this uh, earlier saying that it stemmed from my own interest in internal State, you know, yeah. and processes of mind, which is like very abstract kind of Western Cartesian uh, approach. Mm. The reality is that uh, I think this also uh, maps onto local interests and the interest for knowledge, for instance, is, is very much a cultural interest. But also, when I started working uh, as a as a documentary linguist and recording, which which happened many years after I started working in the community in another role. So I started working, recording people that I knew quite well. And I, I, I was, I came across this question of emotions and found that a lot of the female speakers, the people I worked with, uh, who, who were female speakers of the language were very interested in talking about emotion words. And, and I discovered all these words with body parts that, that, you know, uh, encapsulated quite fine, uh, Emotional meaning and speakers were really keen to discuss them. So that that's what initially prompted me to narrow the focus down from down or shift the focus slightly from internal states, knowledge, culture to specifically emotion and expressivity.
2: Yeah, that's that's great. It's wonderful to be to be led by speakers in, in that way. Could you perhaps give us some comparative examples of emotion expressions in Taliban and in Creole, and and what you learned from them?
1: Well, one thing is that uh, there's, like I said, like of course you can look at either the resemblances or the differences. Mm. Um, in terms of resemblances, um, there's a lot of Taliban words that, sorry, there's a lot of Creole words that sound perfectly English, but in fact they they their meaning is the same as the meaning of a Taliban word. So, for instance, um, an, an important, I guess, an important um, value in the, the moral etiquette of Taliban people or, or you know people in Anam land is what has been called compassion in the anthropological literature. So it's basically the sense that you need to have empathy for other people, in particular relatives, in particular kin, and that you need to, uh, so you need to uh, feel sorry for them, you need to feel grief, you need to worry about them if they're sick. But also coming with this, there's a sense that this feeling, this empathetic feeling is equated with attitudes of and behaviors of sharing, caring in practice. So you help someone, you you care for somebody if they're sick, You you and in particular sharing material goods such as food. So there is a a sort of cluster which is both emotional and behavioral, which encompasses these empathetic emotions and the related behaviors of sharing and caring. And one thing that I found interesting is that there is this, so in Creole, the way to express compassion is with the word sorry in English, uh, in in Creole, but the word comes from English. Mm. It sounds exactly the same as the English sorry. And indeed, To express compassion in Creole, you're going to say feel sorry. So in Taliban, it's marbun, it's it's a verb. In Creole, it's feel sorry. And these words pattern in the same way. But equally, Creole in Creole, feel sorry sounds very similar to the English feel sorry. Mm. However, in Creole, there's also another way you can use the verb, which is you say that someone, you, you can say, oh, can you sorry me, blah, taka? Which means that you use the verb in a different way where it's not just uh describing your state it's describing someone's action to give you something out of compassion so perhaps you you're you know you're in need for food and you go and see a relative and you say oh can you sorry me blataga, can you give me a bit of food out of your compassion for me because you're a relative (laughs) and so that's really interesting because this word which you know on the face of it sounds perfectly equal to english and you could speak creole for ages for year with, with without encountering the other expression. But it shows that people have taken this little bit of word and just done something which came from English and done something with it, which is exactly the same as you would do in Taliban with the verb marbun, which you can use exactly in the same way. You know, you, you can you can say, uh, can you marbun me something? So can you give me something out of compassion?
2: Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. And and I love the, the Creole words, sexy, S-E-K-S-I and greedy, G-R-I-D-I. Um, can you tell us about sexy and greedy?
1: Yeah, sure. So sexy, of course, you know, comes from sexy in English. Uh, the orthography, by the way, like is, is something that people use. But, you know, I don't I mean, I see Creole written on Facebook or text messages and, you know, people do people spell it as, as they wish.
0: Right. Um,
1: but um, yes, so sexy. And it doesn't really mean... So in English, sexy is a physical attribute, right? It's the way someone looks, I, get, I guess. Uh, or you could say to act sexy is something about your appearance. In Creole, sexy is something of that, but there's also an intention. So someone is described as, as sexy. It's not so much... It's the way you look, but it's also being flirtatious. Mm. A typical... Uh, example, if you, if you use these words, speakers will come up with examples Oh, you know, these young women, sort of like teenagers who walk around the community, you know, and sort of like they're parading around, you know, showing themselves in the community. So that's, that's, this word encapsulates a very, very sort of quite typical um, behavior and also a set of value around, values around this behavior. Uh, one thing that I find interesting with sexy is that if you speak to an older person, it's definitely condemned. But obviously, if you speak to a younger person who mm. actually li- likes to walk around and parade around, of course, they, they, they're they not as judgmental. So. So, yeah. And greedy also, uh, greedy, of course, coming from greedy in English. But again, the sense is slightly, the nuance is slightly different. It means selfish, but modually, it has a sense of, you know, a personality feature of someone who's... Who keeps things to to themselves in terms of being unwilling to share, and in particular unwilling to share food, and mm. that relates to what we were talking about earlier about the feel sorry and the you know the sense of compassion and and the the moral imperative to share and care. Uh, so greedy is someone who doesn't do that. So it, yeah. it's much broader than, and I guess yeah, much much more. Um, morally connoted than than greedy in or the moral connotations are different than with greedy in english
2: and these are examples uh, i might have this wrong but these are examples where the semantics it overlaps more closely with the traditional language than it and, does with english
1: yeah absolutely so you yeah. have equivalent you have equivalent words uh, with words with equivalent meaning for sexy and greedy in
0: right. Taliban, yes. but also
1: for a lot with a lot of uh, a lot of uh,
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: So you make the point that these these overlaps do need to be seen in the the bigger these overlaps between Creole and Dalabon, these examples that you provide in the book, should be seen in a in a bigger context because the the meanings of the Dalabon terms sometimes share a similar semantic space with terms from other languages in Australia, or to put it another way, it's a mistake to fix on fixate on Dalabon as a as a unique special case in Australia. So Absolutely. can you illustrate this for us, some of these longer range?
1: Yes, I would like to. So I w- also I would like to clarify something potentially mm. for the more sort of like the, the creoleists in the audience is that <laughs> the uh, my the, the purpose in the book is not to claim that Taliban has influenced uh, Creole directly. Like, you know, right. there is linguists are key, often keen to to trace the, the origins of words and meanings and grammar. And this is not what I'm trying to do in the book. Like, I'm not claiming that Taliban has influenced, you know, the sense of, of sorry in particular, because mm-hmm. the influence could come from elsewhere in Australia. Right. And indeed, if you take sexy, for instance, there's evidence that uh, there are words with similar profiles elsewhere in Australia. For instance, okay. there is this lovely article uh, from uh, Yasmin Musharbash. It's a two or ten article, I think, which is about... Love and marriage and its contemporary, uh, how it, it, uh, how these things around love and marriage are acted upon in contemporary Australia. So the recent evolution. And she identifies the words lover boy and lover girl. And mm. f- there's not so too much detail in the article about the, them, but I, I feel that from what she gives, it seems very, very similar to this sense of like, you know, sex, people who are sexy in the creole sense. Mm. So these teenagers who, walk around in search for a lover
2: <laughs> yeah great um, and and when you zoom out to look at these these other uh, hundreds of other australian languages we start to see you know more of these long distance patterns and something that really surprised me from your books from your book is the um the co-lexifications across space and across language families can you tell the listeners what a colexification is and perhaps give an example of one
1: sure uh so collectification is in fact it's a it's a complicated word to say something very simple mm. it's when a single word encapsulates several meanings and an example in English for instance is the word sibling which collectifies the the meaning brother and the meaning sister so mm. you have these two words but you can also say sibling it's it, and you you mean both at the same time so that's So you say then that it's a colexification, that the word sibling colexifies the meaning brother and sister. And, uh, of course, that's a simple example, but there are things that can be a bit more, uh, sort of a a bit less intuitive in the sense of, for instance, there is this word in Creole, which is like in Michel. So that comes from in the etymon, the etymology in English would be the verb like and myself is the, the reflexive pronoun so but like him means a range of things and it means both to be flirtatious so it's the same sort of yeah. connotations as sexy it's it's very similar it's about parading around etc like in michel also means to be proud and to and it comes with showing off right so parading around showing off and it also means to simply to enjoy oneself to to have a good time to yeah enjoy oneself and so this uh sort of threefold association, colexification between fl- being flirtatious, being proud and having a good time is something that you find uh, you find equivalent co- uh, colexifications in languages that are as far as Jingulu, for instance, uh, mm. in the back of Tabeland or Wiradjuri in New South Wales. So of course, I mean, you have to be careful because colexifications can also happen by chance. Yeah. And I haven't investigated this in, in as much detail I, as I could say, you know, confidently. Well, this word in jingaloo and this word in Jir- Wiratjuri is exactly the same, you know. But from what you find in dictionaries and examples and descriptions, it really, really gives me a sense that you do find the same sort of association, which ultimately relates potentially on cultural association. So the cultural habit of noticing the fact that someone who's flirtatious may also be someone who's uh, showing off and someone also yeah. who's laughing because yeah. um, flirtation is, is strongly associated with laughing, in, in, at least in the, amongst Taliban uh, people. So, so there is something of a cultural pattern here. So this is a case where a language does encapsulate a cultural pattern. And I think that it may be recurrent across Australia.
2: Yeah, and it's pretty extraordinary. I think um, when we were talking earlier about Warfian research and so on, and where just how much colexification um, can show us about these relationships between language and culture. But for the, the non-Australianists listening or people from not from Australia, um, the distance, the geographic distance between um, yes. Wiradjuri country and Dalabon is immense. You know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, not, it's what about
1: 4,000, 5,000 yeah. kilometres, something like yeah. that, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, in your book, you talk about uh, compassionate contours. What are these and what do they do in each language, in, in Creole and in Talabon?
1: Yeah, so this is another uh, interesting uh, feature of, of the languages in Arnhem Land, including Taliban and other older languages and Creole. So what I've called... I've labelled it myself. You know, I'm, I'm. I don't think speakers have a name for these things, which are. It's basically there's a melodic way of speaking, so we call it a melodic contour or a prosodic contour in linguistics, which is very marked. So, um, in 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 English, for instance, you can have a melodic contour where you say something like "oh," you know, and it's kind of uh, uh, expressing your endearment by changing the melody of your voice. In Talabon and in Creole and in some other neighboring languages, there's something extremely remarkable. So it's I it's very hard to imitate out of the blue because it goes very high, then it goes down, then there's lengthening. So it's something like blah, I mean giving it tucker blah all something like that. So okay. and, and speakers do it quite a lot. Um, mm. and it's very distinctive, very characteristic. In Talabon, it it's something that speakers use not just for endearment, but also for compassion, like I said before, like this sense of feeling empathetic towards someone and also so feeling sorry for them. But also, this is something that speakers do if they witness someone feeling sorry or caring or sharing for someone else, because this is a way to flag that, oh, I like this behavior. This is endearing. I like the fact that people share and care from each other, for each other. So I am going to use this very marked contour. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's something and it's and it's carried the form has carried through from Taliban from to Creole, although it's used perhaps slightly differently in Creole.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's that's great. Um so on that theme um of endearment uh, and other things, what is evaluative morphology and how does it work in Talabon versus in Creole?
1: First I I think I might start to by trying to define morphology so evaluative okay. morphology is, is, uh, is a bit of a, another technical word mm. uh, to talk simply about these these little bits and pieces of word that you can put onto another so uh, and and that express, for instance, endearment. So diminutives are one type of evaluative morphology. And a diminutive is something like the the E in kitty in English. So, you know, you you want to express the fact that something is small and potentially endearing, you put an E at the end. Um, And evaluative morphology marginally is the word for this sort of uh, small bits and pieces of words that you can put on another word and that will change will flag that you like it or maybe you don't Mm. like it or you know so um in in some other languages so english doesn't have many of them uh but there's still this little e thing at the end of words but some languages have many and some languages also have some for negative evaluation and in taliban is is one of these languages like many languages in the world that have Mm. a lot of these diminutives there's several there's you know several actual forms and you can put them everywhere and it, look, it's mm. not like i said it's something that speakers who people in in the audience listeners who who speak uh, spanish italian uh, dutch you know these and many languages in the world uh, do this they they have this thing that you can put every you could put five in the same sentence so
2: yeah. yeah yeah i i think it's amazing that um you know these italian spanish german polish diminutives seem to when you were describing the dalabon that these diminutives in dalabon it just seems so similar but my impression was um in in the european languages the diminutives are sort of generically affectionate, while in Dalabon, it's more about expressing compassion, right?
1: That's correct. Yes, that's correct. And across the word, uh, endearment is the most uh, prevalent uh, expression of diminutives. Yes, it's sort of like the more neutral. Yes, I have actually worked on a cross-linguistic typology of of this. (sighs) So I've looked at it outside of Australia, of course, with a very small number of languages. So this needs to be improved. But overall, the picture is that endearment is the sort of like most common, most neutral affective value of these these items, uh, but then some con- in some count in some countenance, For instance, in Africa, it seems that African languages seems to seem to pull them towards a more uh, uh, grand uh, notion of love. So not just you oh, know okay. endearment affection, but more like romantic love and and that sort of things. Uh, and in Australia, it seems that it's more leaning towards compassion and again, the same thing as, as uh, we said before. So in the, same, in the same way as speakers of Taliban will use this melodic contour mm. when they witness somebody being compassionate or even being in grief, for instance, because that shows the right attitude towards others, they can also use diminutives uh, to do this. So uh, they they will they will use this this little wood that they put at the end of word to to show that they they like someone they're endeared, or they are indeed or they feel sorry about someone or this person is doing the right thing and being compassionate with someone else. Yeah. And interestingly, I would like to say that that's a good this it's interesting to look at these two features. So on the yeah. one hand, the melodic contour, and on the other hand, the the, the evaluative morphology, because Creole does not have the evaluative morphology and this is because this is because of this the basic grammatical profile of the language right uh, it's it's more like english it keeps words apart it doesn't stick little bits and pieces mm-hmm. onto words so it, in a sense that's an impediment of the grammar right that creole yeah. doesn't do these things in terms of what speakers have to express what they do is that they replace they don't have the diminutives but they replace the diminutives With other things to express the same thing. So, and they can use, for instance, compassionate contour, these melodic contours. They also use things like interjections and that sort of things.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about um, figurative language. In other words, the more metaphorical or idiomatic forms of expression. What did you discover about figurative language in the domain of emotions in in both, in both Dalabon and Creole?
1: So that's a very, in a sense, quite an interesting domain. Mm. Um, In terms of uh, figurative language, there's the main um, figurative representation of emotions in Taliban has to do with the body. And so you find all these, like, there's like dozens and dozens of expressions that uh, describe emotions as a state of a body part. I'll just give a few examples. So, for instance, Mm. you can say, Gong yo yo mu. So this, the word gangu means belly, stomach belly, and yo yo mu means to flow. And so if you if you say that you have a flowing belly, of course this is metaphorical. You mean that you feel good. You feel good. You you or, or you're a nice person. Uh, so this is a, a metaphorical representation uh, that involves the belly. And in Taliban, there's like dozens and dozens of those. But it's not just with the belly. Of course, there's things like the heart, which is closer to English, but the metaphors can be different. So in Talbot, in having a high heart, a heart that sits up high, for instance, means that you feel strong affection for someone. And there's other body parts like the eyes, the, the mouth, um, you name it, like it's like dozens and dozens. And this is quite prevalent uh, in the language for many, for different reasons. So first, This is not to say that it's unique at all. Many languages in the world have, or practically perhaps every language in the world does that. In English, we have brokenhearted. And Anna Vietzpichka, who's done a lot of work on emotion in language, has uh, suggested that it may be a universal. But the number of expressions of this sort is much higher in Taliban than in English, for instance. And it's also their prevalence in language, right? You just use them all the time. And this comes also with the fact that this is the main way that emotions are represented so it's not the only way but one thing that you do not do in taliban is to represent emotions as independent entities that can be forces or enemies or so um you know in in uh in english you could say or he's being uh he's being blighted by love and Mm. when you do this you depict love as some kind of force that's affecting your abilities right and it's external to you and it's affecting you but you don't do that in Taliban because actually there's not many nouns to describe emotions so instead you you don't describe emotions as these things that are external to you and can attack you you describe emotions as states of your body so that's quite an important uh, linguistic difference and it's not. It's also so. And it's quite prevalent in the. It's a prevalent pattern in the language. Mm. It's also not unique to Taliban at all in Australia. And in fact, most Australian languages do that. And I've I've recently worked on a study study with uh, with the help of uh, Kitty Jean Larginia, um who and we've produced a website that you can look at, which explains the patterns across the country and and so on. So that's really quite a, a strong feature of the figurative description of emotions in Australian languages. And interestingly, in Creole, this is not carried over. So um, whether this is perhaps because of linguistic constraints of the grammar, there may be other reasons. In any case, Creole has a couple of expressions like this. You can say uh, good bingy, no good binge." Binge being your belly. And, you know, you, you say that it's good or bad and it means that you feel good or you feel bad. But it's not that frequent. Um, and it is quite frequent, but also, but not that much. And also, there's not many other expressions. It's, it's amongst the only ones that are at least somewhat frequent in the language. And so this is an aspect that Creole, uh, the Creole lexical uh, fabric, if you like, has not taken over from Taliban or other Australian languages. Um, yeah, so that's that's a difference. But then it should be nuanced with the fact that these it doesn't mean that sp- people who speak Creole do not locate emotions in the belly, for instance. Well yeah, they, they do. Yeah. And there's gestures that go along with this, etc.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was struck by that in your book too. Um I want to ask a bit of a curly question, um, which is I mean, one of the Findings for me are one of the striking things is that you know these these things do carry through; they persist through these cultural associations, um, di- n- not despite language shift. Um, and I wondered if you could reflect on whether there are any you know cultural values or ideologies that may may have been or may be tacitly held by Dalabon people that have bolstered the continuity of culture, or at least the continuity of these shared representations such as associations between body parts and feelings. So in other words, is there something other than language and language structure that is supporting the continuity of these kinds of persisting cultural associations?
1: Wow, that is a big question. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, first I would like perhaps to say a few more a few more things yeah, about the discontinuity, please. the linguistic discontinuity. So,
2: yeah,
1: it's pretty clear that if you compare with respect to the figurative representations of emotions, if you compare Creole and Talabon, there is there is a, quite a bit of discontinuity there. The the metaphors have not carried over. Okay. Okay. That said, uh, it doesn't allow us to necessarily draw conclusions about conceptual people shared representations of emotions. Like I said, it's pretty clear that there is still a strong prevalence of emotions being associated with the belly, Mm. uh, which is a cross uh, continental pattern in general, not unique, but it's the most, it's the, the, the belly is the body part that is the most frequently associated with emotions across Australian languages. And also, like I said, you can still see in in linguistic features such as gestures, conventionalized gestures with, you know, people gesturing towards their belly when they talk about emotions, etc., and reproducing metaphors that have to do with flowing, for instance, um, mm. that that are still there. So this is a case where you you know the language has changed, yeah. and then uh, but but it doesn't it hasn't uh, the the. Conceptual people's conceptual representation don't seem to have just collapsed simply because, you know, they, they changed the language. They, they kept the representation at least for a while. And I suppose the question of what's going to happen, you know, in terms of, you know, whether these representations will persist, it, it depends. I guess it depends on people entirely to whether, you know, how their mind goes. And I suppose, yes, there could be a fact that ling- if the if certain representations are not supported linguistically, they are not reinforced, you know, by constantly constantly talking about emotions in the language, as if they were states of the of the body, which they are, mm. by the way. Yeah. Um, so if we don't have this sort of background of linguistic metaphors, perhaps, this will allow representations to change quicker. However, right. ultimately, yeah. we don't we don't know that It could be interesting to, to sort of come back in 20 years and, and see what it's like. But the yeah. other thing is that it's I believe that it's important to keep in mind that speakers remain agents in this because, yeah. you know, they, they, they may if these representations are really important and fundamental to the way they function in life, I would be tempted to believe that they will simply keep them and that these representations will be will, maybe they will even resurface in language yeah. elsewhere.
2: Right, um,
0: yeah.
1: but of course, this is all speculation. I mean, like yeah. we're sort of stepping out of the of the the realm of what I have explored <laughs> empirically, and yeah. sort of speculating about you know people's minds, etc. Which I don't think it's unfair to speculate, but no. we just need to remember that at the yeah. moment, this is not something I can answer on empirical grounds podcasting i think (laughs) we can do this
2: um and you've you've given a very good answer i think and you've answered my follow-up question so i'll skip to um we're we're getting towards the end i just want to ask what what is it that you think we still all of us still need to learn about language shift to a creole
1: Mm. um that's a very good question um I think perhaps this is a, a question that we need to ask to, to Creole speakers. Like, okay. I mean, there's, it's really interesting because, well, I might, I might, if, if you, if I may, I might turn the question back to you. Okay. Who Who is, who is we in this?
2: Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I, the we, I was hoping would be a, a very much an inclusive of, of speakers of Creole English, yeah. Australian English and so on. Um but I mean I, I feel like your work, not just this book, but your work generally opens up these questions that a lot of people don't even consider to be lurking there underneath.
1: Well, I'm, I might answer though I might answer your question mm. because I mean when I it seemed it's sounded perhaps like a you know like a, like a nasty question when I turned the, <laughs> the question on of the we back to you. But actually I was really wondering because it could be about like we as linguists, like you right. know, okay. or yeah, yeah. or like scientifically, or yeah. it could be We as a community with perhaps hopefully a moral duty to, you know, be as less discriminative against others as possible. So I think perhaps if it's we as a general we, including everybody, perhaps we could start with something very simple is that I do this test every semester in all my, my classes with all my students. Some, of okay. stu- some students, yeah. I mean, students in linguistics, they usually know about the existence of Creole, K-R-I-O-L, in Australia. Mm-hmm. So this is a language that has 20,000 speakers, 20 to 30,000 indigenous speakers in Australia. This is the most widespread indigenous language in the country. Yeah. Anytime I speak to students, usually they're like advanced students, like third, mm-hmm. years, third year, four, fourth years, honor students in uh social sciences political sciences anthropology the like the the maybe one percent of them knows about Creole one percent of them knows that there's a language in their in their own country which has which numbers you know that many speakers of Australian um of, of indigenous which is the most widespread indigenous language with that many speakers. They just don't even know. And probably because I'm French, usually they say, oh yeah, we know Creole. You mean from the French islands? And I'm like, Um, (laughs) no. So so I think perhaps what we learn when we as Mm. a society, as a community, need to learn about Creole is that it exists. And what it is and, and to the extent to, you know, very descriptive knowledge, to what extent it's different from English, to what extent it resembles English and how people who speak it Feel about it, yeah. and that could be a good start. Now, then, yeah. as as a linguist and also perhaps a member of the community, I would be curious to um, perhaps understand more of the the nexus be- between Creole and Aboriginal English. Okay. Um, the you know the resemblances and the differences between the two, and and how the speakers also feel about these differences.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a terrific response, and I think um, you know I'm I'm a bit shocked by your students and and you know, and it's... it's. I am or, shocked
1: every time. Look,
2: it's our responsibility too. It's yes. everyone's responsibility to know about the country that they occupy. Oh, and but
1: I, I'm not blaming the students. If it no, was like a few ignorant right. people <laughs> who had been left aside, but it's like the vast yeah. majority. Okay. In fact, a colleague of mine who's a prominent historian recently uh, working on Australian Matters also said, you know, confessed very, very mm-hmm. candidly that that she also didn't know about it. Right? So there's a yeah. problem there. And another friend of mine who's and colleague, you know, who, who's a philosopher. She, when I said that to her, like she was like, and she said, But why? Why are people yeah. so ignorant? They're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, I, I was also thinking of Creole with a C because I mean, the first step is knowing about Creole with a K. Um, but then, yes. as you've pointed out, once, even once you know about that, there is a whole range of prejudices around Creole with a yes. K, and then there is also a whole range of prejudices around Creoles plural with a C, it, and there is the entire um, very fiercely fought Creole debate, which I won't ask you to rehash here. No, so I think I mean, <laughs> I mean, even before we get anywhere, it sounds like there is a lifetime of of work, both you know, linguistic work and social work that needs to be done.
1: Yeah,
2: um, and I'll just I'll. I'll ask you one last question, which is, um, what is it that you're working on right now?
1: Yes. Uh, so right now, I am working on um, three things. So I'm I'm, writing, I'm finishing to write an article about uh, body-based emotion metaphors in Australian languages. So this is something that I've already, um, I've got a more linguistic article on it, which is about to be published. And there's also okay. a more broad audience website. But I decided that I also wanted to do an article on this that would be targeting more like anthropologists. So, okay. and I wanted to mention this work that I'm doing at the moment because it's. I feel that it's important to talk across disciplines. So, uh, you know, I thought, okay, I've got this linguistic article, but it's fairly technical, it's fairly long. So I'm not going to reach the, the anthropologists with this, although, you know, and also archaeologists can actually be interested in this because it's, it's important semiotically, uh, people who work on rock art and this sort of thing. So I decided to do this, this uh, to make the effort to write this additional article, which is for uh, an academic audience, a scholarly audience, but not linguistically, not technically linguistic. So okay. that's one thing that I'm doing. Another thing uh, is that I am also working with the help of a student on um, on the the contours that we talked about, the melodic contours and how they function in other languages than Taliban, in particular okay. the Rembagan language. and um, and oh yeah, and I have another uh, collaborative student project with a student and another colleague on uh, emotions and how. Um, how emotion terms and the treatment of emotions in the media have changed with COVID. So you see that it's quite a broad uh, yeah. range of interest. Uh, in the future, I hope to also do more, uh, and I'm also, I've also started to do more, um, more work that allow us to understand further the question of the, the influence of a language one speaks outside of language shift, The influence of the linguistic tools that are available to a given human being on the way they experience emotion. So, in other words, if you, you know, if you have um, a diminutive in your language that allows you to easily express uh, compassion and and, and endearment and this sort of, is it going to mean that perhaps these, these values that are attached to compassion are going to be more, um, more easily communicated, and thus therefore more frequently communicated okay. in your community, which perhaps in turn could modify your values and and perhaps your your own emotional uh, experience.
2: That all sounds absolutely terrific, um, and thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic yes, having you, you on the podcast.
1: Yes, uh, that was also a lot of fun for me. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Maya. Bye.
1: Bye.